Now, speaking of incredible things, plastic surgeon, what could you do with Tim's head? <laughs> Welcome to season two of The Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. Two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs. In this show, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm standing opposite Tim Curtis. And I'm standing opposite Ben Pronk. G'day, Ben. G'day, Tim. G'day, everyone. Our guest this week, have we ever had... We've had a doctor, the average 70 kilo dickhead. Mm -hmm. Have we ever had a surgeon? Has Dan performed surgery? Does that make Have we ever had someone who's <laughs> legally allowed to do it? No. And certainly not a plastic surgeon. Our guest this week is Dr. Linda Monchizade, mm-hmm. um, who is a pretty amazing person. As I mentioned before, plastic surgeon. And we get in this episode uh, to understand the ins and outs of plastic surgery, the differences between reconstructive plastic surgery and cosmetic surgery, which I think I was guilty of thinking were kind of the same thing or having a a stereotypical view of what a plastic surgeon is and does. But not just that, she's got a fascinating background in terms of her childhood and upbringing. Mm -hmm. And she and I have a a common passion in art. She's an amazing um, artist, portraitist, um, oil painter. Mm, a refugee and a triplet. Is she bringing her instruments and tools in for a quick Which nip and tuck? Art or surgery? <laughs> <laughs> well, as a spoiler alert, Tim does hit her up for free medical advice right, right at the start, which was awkward for everyone. But once we overcame that, we had a really great conversation. It is tremendous. Yeah. Let's get on with the show. And welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast, and welcome to my co-host, Ben Pronk. G'day, Tim. How are you? And I'm Tim Curtis. Pretty sure I'm still Tim Curtis. And Ben, who do we have in the studio today? We are joined by, I just asked you how you pronounce your last name, Linda, Monshizade. It's really good. It's kind of close. (laughs) Very good. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Really uh, excited to be here with you both today. We're super excited. I've got so many questions, but can we start by just bit of intro to yourself and sort of where you grew up and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, sure. Um, so I think like a lot of Australians, I'm a refugee. So my family's from Iran and um, I'm actually one of three girls. So we're triplets. We've got an older brother. He's five years older than us. So I was about five years of age um, and my brother would have obviously been 10 when um, our family escaped Iran. And this, this was post the Islamic Revolution. Um, and being Baha'is, um, there was a lot of religious persecution, even before the revolution, but mm-hmm. certainly afterward, to such a point that um, my family knew to get a better education for us, um, we had to move to a different country. So we're talking, it's 1979, right? 1979 was the revolution. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And what part of um, Iran was your family in at that stage? Um, so I was born in Esfahan, mm-hmm. but I think we ended up in Tehran at the time. Okay. Yeah. And do your parents talk about it? Yeah, they very openly talk about yeah. it. So, um, yeah, and we've got a great relationship where we talk about everything 
with each other. I'm very open. Um, and like my father, he had an amazing business there. He was a pediatrician. Yep. He had his own private practice. He'd worked in public. He was extremely busy, very well off. Um, we had like a two-story house. My mom was very educated. She was an electrical engineer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she was looking after us. And then um, it got to this point where they realized that, uh, for example, um, us as girls, three girls, we wouldn't be able to go to university. Yeah. Um, and I think the last straw for my dad was um, he saw a patient in his private practice who was extremely unwell and he thought he had a burst appendix and he sent him to a public hospital for an emergency uh, admission and they actually rejected the patient because he was sent by a Baha'i physician and that kid ended up dying. Mm. So, And that and that was the catalyst to saying... Almost, yeah. Even, and because it must have been an enormous decision. I mean, you know, everything's there, really successful practice, yeah. family, and then to, to pull yeah. out. Wow. Yeah. How old were you when you left Terra? I was only five. Oh, sorry, yeah. I missed that. <laughs> yeah, so we were only five. My brother was five years older, so he would have been about 10 years old. Yeah. Um, so we went to Pakistan, mm-hmm. um, and we were there for a year under the protect- protection of the United Nations. Um, and then we stayed there for a whole year until my dad um, managed to get a working visa to migrate to Australia. And what's your first memory of Australia? Um. I think I actually remember the airport. So I remember seeing, um, being greeted by a family at the airport and I think getting gifts. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, but yeah, very good memories. And Even in Pakistan, I had amazing memories. I think it was very easy for us as kids because um, we had just had fun and they had the kite festival in Pakistan, which is amazing. Yep. And they had like circuses on the streets and there were eagles in the sky and um, I don't know, I, we as kids, because we always had each other, the, yeah. the four of us, yeah. it was a lot of fun, but I, um, on reflection, it would have been very difficult for my parents. Yeah, well, it must have been incredibly, tr- just the turmoil and the, the sort of trauma that, uh, yeah. associated with, with uprooting. Um, did you have English at this stage? Um, so this is the awesome thing about my parents. So we had English, well, my dad used to study English because mm-hmm. he knew he knew the importance of um, having English as a second language. So even um, before in his own youth, he actually went and studied uh, medicine in Germany. So he's actually multilingual. He went and studied medicine in Germany, went back and completed medicine in Iran. And at the same time, he used to study uh, medicine from the textbooks in English, just so he would make sure he was up to date. And so in Pakistan, they would um, make us listen to cassette tapes in English. And also like really old school movies, like black and white movies in English. <laughs> and my dad was a huge um, fan of Western movies. Yeah, so right. he, we would, li- we would um, watch a lot of those. But it was very proper English. So I've got this funny story that my brother, once we came to Australia, the first day in high school when he went to meet the principal, um, the principal put out his hand and then he, my brother shook it and said, how do you do? <laughs> <laughs> Sesame Street? Any Sesame Street? Oh, no. Uh, Funny, Sesame Street were a client of mine in the Middle East, and they do an incredible amount of overseas work, mostly radio, of course, uh, to a lesser amount television in different languages. The penetration is phenomenal globally. Who who was your go-to? Were you sort of 
talking to Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, so they, uh, their uh, corporate office is in New York, and when you go into the corporate office, it is like walking into a Sesame Street set. Yeah. And there's Elmo and Big Bird and Oscar <laughs> the Grouch, and every single cubicle's got some Sesame Street yeah. um, figurine or, cool. or puppet. Yeah, it's very cool. Very oh, cool. I didn't know. So you've arrived in Australia as a six-year-old by this stage? Yes. Then what? Well, sorry, where did you arrive? So Perth? we came to Adelaide actually, okay. um, and that was mainly because most of our other family had already um, migrated to Adelaide first. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my one of my cousins they'd gone to New Zealand, but then the rest were in Adelaide, or they were. She was initially in New Zealand, and then they moved to Adelaide. So I had my grandma there, my other aunties and uncles. So that was the decision made. We just, especially, I mean, in any. Um, minority I think family is everything yeah um so you stay as a family unit so we went to Adelaide I had an amazing upbringing in Adelaide we had a um a house in the suburbs with a huge backyard with chickens and um lots of different vegetables and in the garden and um yeah had an awesome time um growing up there was there any um issues being from a, a different ethnic background growing up I mean um, I think because Adelaide is also full of a lot of Italians and Greeks, <laughs> yeah. so I felt like from that sense I fit in. Yep. And the, it was very multicultural. I mean, there was a few, uh, a few Asians, but it was mainly Italians, Greeks, and Australians. Um, there were some things that were different, like the food that my my mum used to give us to take to school <laughs> was significantly different compared to my classmates. Um, for example, we've got these. Um, it's like a. Uh, herb called it's a sabzi it's a green thing and it looks like grass so one day and we have we my mum used to put the toast and she put feta cheese and she used to put this green stuff in there and then the kids were thinking I was eating grass (laughs) so little things like that um and sort of dressed differently as well I think Mm -hmm. we had a lot of our clothes that were handmade from Iran or um taken from Pakistan so things like that that were a little bit different to the others but didn't really affect me. Can you talk to us about being a triplet? I've never met a triplet before. Yeah, a lot of people ask me that question. And because I don't know any difference, uh, I don't really know how to answer it. It feels like just having, um, you know, sisters of the same age. We're very different personalities. So we're actually, uh, I'm fraternal compared to the other two. The other two are identical. And actually, they looked a lot more alike when we were um, first born and as kids, and now sort of through the environmental factors, probably they they look a lot different. Um, but you can still tell we look the same. We look, you know, we've got similar mm. smiles and 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 features, but very different personalities. Where were you in the birthing order? I was last. I was the youngest <laughs> by I'm like just, a minute. <laughs> I'm I'm curious about it. Yeah. yeah. It's it's my understanding. It's a, a medical fact that you can read each other's minds. Is, Apparently, is that, <laughs> is that right? Can you finish each other's sentences? Do you need to? I think we know each other so well that you we don't could. Need to ask the question but, would happen yeah. anyway. But yeah, not telepathically or anything. <laughs> hmm. Actually, um, they're speaking to me right now. <laughs> <laughs> We've got three guests in the studio. <laughs> Tim, Tim's used to having voices in his own head. <laughs> yeah. So troubling. Primary and high school in Adelaide, and then UWA? 
University of Western oh, Australia? Actually, I did um, primary school um, in Adelaide, mm-hmm. and then I did a year of high school at Holly, uh, not Hollywood, Norwood Morata, mm-hmm. and then the family moved to Perth. So my um, we're very um, medically orientated family. Yeah. So my brother is a dentist, so he got accepted at University of Western Australia. And then I remember the day when he got the acceptance letter, my mum and dad, they were so happy. But we looked on the map. We, trying to, we had no idea where <laughs> WA was, searching over the east, and then we found out it was all the way on the other side. Did, did the western bit in Western Australia not sort of <laughs> clue you onto it? Apparently not. No. But, yeah, so the whole family, as I said, you know, strong family unit. We all um, uprooted again and um, moved over to WA. Very cool. I'm really glad we came here. And so, okay, so you finished your high school in yeah, WA? Yeah, yeah. So I, um, I was initially at Hollywood Senior High School, mm-hmm. and then he got. Uh, we were the first year twelves because he got um, bulldozed down. One That's... of the other whole, one of the other high schools. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I that think was... there was Shenton College. Yeah, so Shenton College. Yeah. it became. Yeah. So yeah, I was at Shenton College, and then went over straight and did medicine after that. So look, let's re- rewind, sort of. Because that's just, you've just sort of yeah. glossed over the fact that you got into medicine at UWA, which is yeah. a super sort of prestigious school here in Australia. Um, were you good at school? Was it something that came naturally? Did you have a really good work ethic? How, how did yeah. that path to sort of medicine I think um, one, I guess, genetics and environment, both of them. So blessed to have the genetics of my parents. And then also the most important thing is um, the triplet thing is a great example, like me and my sisters. I was the one who truly enjoyed studying and like um, I was extremely competitive as a kid, Um, so much so that um, used to piss off my brother so much. (laughs) But especially as a kid, I didn't realise I didn't like losing. And I was really a, a bad loser as a kid, which I, you know, later re- later learned to um, improve on. But um, I think being also a refugee also puts in your mind um, the value of having an education. So not taking things for granted, um, recognising the sacrifices that your parents have made for you, you know, uprooting all of it really just to provide us with a better education. Um, so I think that was also in the back of my mind to sort of stir me along and make sure that I made something fruitful out of it. But I think the most important thing was uh, actually having that true passion to do well and actually having the serious interest in, you know, arts and human biology and taking whatever I um, was in front of me and trying to do the best with what I had. Yeah. And then I understand medicine's pretty easy to go. <laughs> How'd you go? Was it was it tough? Um, no, I won't say it's tough. Yeah, I think a lot of work. I think whoever wants to do medicine can do medicine mm-hmm. to a degree. Mm-hmm. But the the toughest part is just, as you know yourselves, is with anything is consistency and discipline. Um, in saying that, I was always a procrastinator and last minute studier. So, um, but at the same time, if you're persistent, if you're passionate about it, you put in the effort consistently, then then it, was, it wasn't really tough. And did you know from the outset where you wanted to specialise? Did you know you wanted to go into surgery and particularly yeah. plastics? Yeah. I think that's why I did medicine okay. because I, I envisaged being a surgeon using my hands and particularly plastic surgery. I didn't know, like I didn't have a name or anything for it, mm. but I remember seeing um, 
things on TV, like documentaries about surgeons doing these incredible things. Yep. Now, speaking of incredible things, plastic surgeon, what could you do with Tim's head? <laughs> and do you have a two-for-one deal? <laughs> <laughs> or, or are there just some things that, that even modern surgery can't we'll, fix? We don't want to violate patient confidentiality. <laughs> That's right. Set up another, I mean, set when up another you're, when meeting. When you're already a nine, there's only some small little customizations. <laughs> a few little tweaks need to be made. Okay, so much for the free medical advice. But So tell me about your field. I'm going to butcher the name, yeah. craniomaxillofacial. So plastic and reconstructive surgery, I'm sure you're aware, yeah. basically um, arose from uh, the struggles in war. Yeah, World War One. World War One and yep. Two. Um, so Sir Harold Gillies and Mackinder are the names that come to mind, mm-hmm. both New Zealand um, originated. Um, and then, you know, really did a lot of their work based in England and the Queen's um, Hospital. Um, but, you know, all of the burn, severe burns, mm-hmm. trauma, um, they needed a new type of therapy. I mean, there were serious infections and, you know, huge holes in people's faces and, um, and you know, legs. Um, so that's where, you know, skin grafts and free flaps, et cetera, mm-hmm. originated from. Um, and so I, th- I don't like the fact that a lot of the public think yeah, of plastic cosmetics. surgery. A, I mean, there's obviously the cosmetic plastic surgery side of things. But the real plastic and reconstructive surgery is about um, problem solving, which is really cool. So, you know, whether it be a cancer, whether it be a congenital deformity, um, for whatever the cause is, the different causes, um, try and find a solution to it to try and give the person back their normal function and the best aesthetic appearance, try and make them look as normal as possible. Mm -hmm. Noting the genesis of it, do you see police, fire, ambulance, military patients? Do you see many of them? So um, we don't actually. I think we're very lucky in this country. I mean, I don't because I haven't been, you know, maybe in a particular environment where I could could see them. But in Australia, certainly, um, I haven't been exposed to that. It is funny you mentioned that, you know, the genesis of it being war and we've Mm. seen some incredible, unfortunate medical evolution over the last couple of decades and am I right in saying that I think it's relatively new that a, a double above knee amputee had never they'd never walked before you know that was basically mm. a write-off for a wheelchair but since all of these IED explosions and that has accelerated medical technology to where we're getting double above knee amputees walking again which yeah I mean I think um, in any aspect of medicine you see this amazing um, increase in technology. And um, I think it's just to do with the Internet of Things and sharing knowledge mm-hmm. and, um, you know, sharing knowledge from all around the world. And it's interesting reading the different biographies of, you know, different surgeons. And a lot of them actually uh, were who first started off, they went and learned from great scholars, you know, who mainly in Paris, actually, Paris and Central Europe. Yep. And they went and took that back to their, you know, native countries and helped spread that. So I think it's the sharing of the knowledge and the fact that we have it so easy now. The acceleration. Um, and it's the acceleration. We're building on what we had before. And um, technology is improving so much. And that's helping driving this um, enormously. Yeah. You described it as problem solving, Linda. How much of what you do is experimental? I mean, even in a learned way. Yeah. Um, I think, I guess, part of the training is experimental. 
Mm-hmm. So, um, any, any doctor who's un- undergoing uh, a training process, I say experimental in a loose term, but what I mean is that, you know, they're doing a, a flap or a skin graft for the first time. You know, they watch someone do it, they talk, they mm-hmm. learn about it. But a lot of the day-in, day-out work that we do is not experimental. So it's, um, you know, basic um, pr- t- basic procedures and techniques that we have learnt about through our training and post-training um, fellowships. And um, the new, um, a lot of the new techniques that are coming out are sort of in the areas that um, sort of are lacking. So even in cranial maxillofacial surgery, I think we've got a huge, um, huge room to improve on. Um, just trying to improve the the um, patients' um, welfare and um, their quality of life. So you, you mentioned training before. Run us through the training that you've had. So six-year undergraduate? Yeah. So um, medicine itself, seven years. So six years and one-year internship. Yep. And I think that's changed now. So UWA, um, unfortunately, is now postgraduate as well. So it's all postgraduate, similar to the United States scheme. You said unfortunately? Yeah. I think it's a shame that sort of... I don't know. I think some some people know what they want to do, um, and now sort of. Oh, is it unfortunate? You can only go. You can postgrad- only go you through postgraduate. Under- yeah, okay. So, um, I mean, it it doesn't change things dramatically because they reduce the number of years in the mm. in the course anyhow, uh, but it does make things slightly longer. Mm. So the, there's the medicine course itself, then the year of internship, then you become what's called a resident. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have slightly increased responsibilities, but so you're in teams, I guess, similar, similar as in the army. Um, you've got the most junior doctor, which is the intern. Then you have the resident, which is one up above that. Then it's the registrars are above that, which take on a, a more responsibility. Mm-hmm. And they're also broken up into a service registrar, someone who's not in the training program, but is sort of gaining more responsibility and probably heading towards a training program. Mm-hmm. And then you have the trainee registrars. So the trainee registrars, depending on which specialty they're in, do a certain number of years. And usually that's, you know, four or five. In plastic surgery, it's five-year training program. Mm -hmm. Um, And within that, there's several exams, you know, before and during and just before completion that we have to undergo. Um, And then it's becoming very commonplace, um, and I certainly recommend following your training to go on and do further training in your subspecialty. Because I think what's happening, as I said, with the increased knowledge, um, everything is actually becoming a subspecialty. Yeah. So I think even plastic surgery itself, you know, give it another 10, 20 years, it's not going to be Just its one. own one broad category. There's going to be microsurgery. There's going to be burn surgery. I mean, burns has already significantly separated. It's almost its own department. Yeah. Um, so um, the burns, then there's the craniofacial. So that includes, you know, um, craniofacial conditions, cleft conditions, um, hand surgeons. Mm-hmm. So a whole gamut of different um, subspecialties. And I guess whilst you're in the training program, you decide what you're most interested in and you go and try and learn a lot more about that following your training because there is only so much exposure you get during your training. Mm-hmm. And and for you that was I'm going to pronounce it right cranio maxillofacial <laughs> surgery which is everything from the neck up yeah head and neck really yeah yeah, yeah. and what why that I just think um, I personally think it's the most challenging 
um, such an amazing and interesting part of the anatomy in the, of the human as the head um, and very rewarding to be able to, you know, problem solve that area, operate on that area. So I've always been interested in, in the head and neck. You've written before, I'm going to quote you in a second, but about this idea of beauty and the importance of people's facial features. And, yeah. and I'm, I'm quoting you here that it is unfortunate that there is so much emphasis on physical beauty. The face is often socially used to measure attractiveness, intelligence, personality, popularity, success and trustworthiness. This ingrained judgment has formed initially through evolutionary pressures and in modern times has been reinforced by the mainstream media. That really resonated with me because I, <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Um, can you expand on your thoughts about this idea of beauty? Yeah, I mean, I struggle with this daily, actually. I think about it a lot. Uh, as, a, as a surgeon, you know, where do you draw the line in terms of um, restoration and then enhancement? And I think that's where reconstructive versus cosmetic is a, is a good delineation, um, particularly if there's a cause, like a pathology for, for the, you know, the difference in the look. Yeah. Um, I think as humans, I mean, the reason why we're not gods per se is because we are all um, basically weakened by the fact that we have these basic instincts and desires, you know, not from our, um, um, not from our cortical brain, but from the basic brain. So, you know, um, basic sexual desires and okay. attractiveness, um, hunger, pain, all these things. Um, which we will never be able to get rid of because that's just our human nature. But I find, I guess, maybe as we become more um, advanced through evolution, perhaps they're going to take more and more of a a backseat. But certainly in this day and age, and what I can see in the social media, it's not taking a backseat. And if anything, it sort of looks like it's gone to be out of hand where um, I don't know why there's just such a huge emphasis placed on appearance and you know correlating that with success and I think because of the it's sort of like a um, uh, action and reward cycle because we've let it allow it to dictate success I think you know obviously through evolution um, if someone looked attractive they were healthy and so because of that you wanted a breeding partner that was healthy to make sure your offspring survived um, we're not in that scenario such anymore, um, but we're sort of taking it to to another level. That's so. In- we loved um, Daniel Goleman's writing on sort of the amygdala hijack. You know, so the that um, small fight or flight mechanism that can often uh, cause us to do things we later regret in the spur of the moment. And a lot of that is about you know snapping or getting angry or yeah. you know those evolutionary protective mechanisms. I've not read about that same sort of evolutionary sort of attractiveness mechanism and there doesn't seem to be much writing on on trying to overcome that and trying yeah. to break down that um, knee-jerk reaction when you see someone who's attractive or unattractive. Yeah, I mean, um, I guess, I mean, sometimes Jordan Peterson sometimes yeah. talks about it. Mm-hmm. So he talks about, you know, for example, why do women wear makeup? You know, do they think about why they wear makeup? So he, he says a lot of uh, controversial um, he discussed a lot of controversial topics and he really makes you think about why humans act the way they do. Um, so I've listened to a few of his um, podcasts and also um, 
one of my main mentors, Professor David David, yeah. who I was so lucky to work with in Adelaide. He was a um, he was a great scholar and philosopher, and um, we often had sort of um, interesting discussions about sort of these kind of topics. So I, I think it, um, that was an amazing opportunity for me to spend that year with him. Uh, because, you know, he sort of helped me think sort of outside the square, mm. even about, you know, how the health system is put together and why and how you can use that to sort of um, in your um, in, in your way to sort of try and improve things within within your area. Mm. And, and you mentioned that, that this sort of phenomenon is getting worse. You've used the phrase selfie dysmorphia mm-hmm. um, in the past to describe this kind of social media driven yeah. sort of body discomfort um you, you're seeing that getting getting worse with filters and all these sorts of things 100 percent. yeah yeah so um you you patients can come and complain about their um their face looking a particular way and um there's certain things that you have to sort of uh, look out for to make sure that you know what's normal what's not normal um, but certainly there is this trend of overanalyzing one's face. And I think that's because um, of the the fact that so many people are taking selfies and comparing themselves to all these um, filtered images online yep. that we see. In, and um, I follow a couple of pages on my Instagram that is um, really interesting. Like there's one called Beauty False and it really compares like the true photograph to the altered photograph and you can see how different things are. Yeah. And I think when, you know, young people are bombarded constantly on social media with all these um, mm-hmm. glamorized photos of enhanced um, images of people's faces, you know, constant attractive faces. Yep. Um, I think it become comes overwhelming for them to think that, hang on, what's what's average? Yeah. Where am I in that scheme? If av- if this is the new level of um, average, then where do, where am I? And it can lead to, you know, all sorts of low confidence, depression. Um, the, you know, changes yeah. in the way they look at their self-image. And particularly, I guess, when that, that beautified image is associated with success and, you know, that's what you want to aspire exactly. to, to put up on that pedestal. Yeah. Mm. Surgery, makeup, filters, why is it that people are resorting to measures that make them look better? Is it for them? Is it a societal expectation? What's your theory? I think it's... um. I think it's all of the above. I think there is no doubt that being looking a certain way in this world, I think it helps. I I, I don't deny that. I think people who are attractive um, have a, a um, evolutionary advantage even yeah. today. So I think people like to be with people who are good looking, mm-hmm. um, and that stems even in childhood. <laughs> that explains a lot. Tim's resisting. <laughs> We're having a really important conversation. Yeah. Tim's resisting the urge to, uh, That's why to crack a, a joke. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> That's why even, you know, in the playground, the ugly-looking kid that's ostracised, bullied, mm. etc. So I think we're, we're, still, we're still all kids, even as adults. And that's where I say that primitive brain is still with us, yeah. that maybe we will never go. Maybe we, we have to wait to our afterlife where... There yeah. is no self-image then. Then there is no food that you need to eat. You don't have those basic desires and then you're just a higher consciousness. So I think um, we have to accept that. But at the same time, it does, that's not an excuse to say let's try and advance and think beyond that. Yes. So 
Um, uh, so, you know, I, I think um, people, especially, you know, if you're not educated, um, then you have even higher chance of being affected by what the social media sells you. Mm. So I think lack of education, um, you know, lack of opportunities, mm-hmm. lack of confidence, all those people are even more at risk of being affected. You're vulnerable to it. Mm. Yeah. about the role of ego? I mean, I've been taking um, in a lot of Eckhart Tolle's writings on ego and losing your ego, being less egoic. Yeah. Um, thoughts on that? Um, so I think ego can come in many forms. Um, so I guess you can fuel it with anything. You can fuel it with the way you look. You can fuel it because I'm the best at this. I'm the best at that. Um, but... I think there is a certain level of ego that's healthy as well. I think ego is important. You know, in my job as a surgeon, if I didn't have a certain level of ego, I wouldn't be able to cut into people, for mm. example. So I in think fact, it's a prerequisite for a surgeon. Yeah, <laughs> it, and certainly in you with your backgrounds as well. I mean, yeah. there's a certain level of ego. Hundred percent. You you couldn't do our jobs, the you know, without without ego. So I think ego is a necessity. But then you have to, again, it's a hard, it's hard to decide where do we draw that line that is too much ego. ego is, yours, is yours confidence rather than ego, though, when you... What's the difference? Yeah. Well, Eckhart Tolle would say that there is a difference, that, mm-hmm. that one is polluting you and the other isn't. I, I don't know. I, so there's, does, there's he probably use, a, does he use ego in a pejorative sense exclusively? Uh, yeah, absolutely. He, right. he says you, you need to be less egoic and everything that you do that is related to you know, you reinforcing your own self-worth is negative. Yeah, and so okay. things like confidence, I think that is different to ego. You know, you maybe use a, sport, a sporting field analysis. Mm-hmm. You know, you take a mark, you've got two options. You can seek to pass the ball to someone else to kick the goal or you can believe that you can kick the goal. I'd say that's confidence rather than ego. But it is this fine line, and I love his writing in the yeah. way that he explains that, and as does Oprah Winfrey. Yeah. You know, I think he, he's been um, you know, featured on her show multiple times, and I, I, really, I really like yeah. it. And, and, you know, coming back to, to the point that you make, in the military, ego is a massive part of who you are. I mean, we, we've talked identity ad nauseum, Ben, mm. and that's why I started to, to read Eckhart Tolle because I thought I've got to really try and deprogram this ego that has been instilled in me, you know, programmed into me through years yeah. of the military. And maybe mm-hmm. it's a semantic argument we're having now, but I'd be with you, Linda, that the concept of ego, as I understand it, is a really important thing, you know, when it gusts into arrogance, that fine line, and perhaps that's what, what Tolo's defining ego as um, in, in your sense. But, yeah, I, I don't think there's anything wrong, and to our conversation about being happy with who you are, yeah. you know, understanding how you exist, what you're good at, and being proud of that. You know, I, I think that's actually a really healthy thing, which can mm. probably combat against, uh, you know, these kind of things like body yeah. dysmorphia and that sort of thing. I guess then we get, yeah, extreme ego into the narcissistic. Exactly, and that's, yeah. I think, well, that, yeah. that's, that's the that's clear negative. always the yeah. intense problem. <laughs> <laughs> but it's oh. fascinating to read him and, and yeah. to just do some self-reflection on, you know, as he talks about ego and the negative aspects of it and becoming less egoic, reflecting on the things that you do in life that are less about anything 
except for you reinforcing your own importance. Yeah. Mm. I, I was just reflecting before, this is a fascinating conversation to be having with a plastic surgeon about, you know, body mm. dysmorphia and, and yeah. that sort of thing. The the sort of layperson stereotype of a plastic surgeon, as you said right at the start, is probably more on the cosmetic mm-hmm. surgery side, so nips, tucks, boob jobs, that sort of stuff. Mm. You must encounter a lot of these sort of folk through your work and conferences and that. Do you, do you have these discussions about body image and selfie dysmorphia with your cosmetic colleagues? Um, actually, we don't. And I think it needs to be discussed a lot more. So... Um that, you know, going back to Adelaide again, um, I had a lot of these discussions with Professor David David. And actually, um, it was amazing to go there and finally just see a, um, someone who's purely dedicating um, himself to a life in reconstructive surgery. And he's done it exceptionally well. So it was a breath of fresh air for me um, because that's, you know, my dream has always been to do that. So, you know, I sort of want to... Um, lead a similar life and you know follow his footsteps of similar to what he's he's achieved in his life um, but I do think we need to talk about it more and um, I myself I think I need to even spend more time thinking about the moral dilemma in my own head and I want to eventually write I think a piece about the morality of plastic surgery um, because you know there is a certain level of responsibility we have to take as mm-hmm. plastic surgeons um, and it's not just um, even plastic surgeons. There's a group of people who aren't necessarily trained as plastic surgeons who call themselves cosmetic surgeons. And I hate to say it, but they're, they're probably the worst of all because then there's, they've actually got no ethics whatsoever and they're doing crazy operations, not enough training um, and you know throwing all ethics aside. And we see a lot of their complication, <laughs> complications <laughs> in the private and the public sector. Um, but as plastic surgeons ourselves, I think even uh, as the group, it's imperative that we talk about these things and, and ha- talk about how they may be influencing the, the young mm-hmm. and how it's appropriate to s- basically um, show your work, ex- for example, on social media. Mm. I think we need to be professional and tactful and... Um, following the footsteps of our predecessors and maintain that professionalism Mm -hmm. because that's what the patients and the public see and that's, you know, what we've always been admired for as doctors and physicians, that integrity and the professionalism. And I think it's starting to go the other way. Um, And there's a fine line that we need to make sure we're on the back of rather than in front of. So I I just use those terms interchangeably, plastic surgeon and cosmetic surgeon. They're clearly different. So I remember when I was talking about the different groups. So again, another subspecialty could, for example, be a cosmetic plastic surgeon. Okay. So cosmetic surgery is basically just another subgroup of plastic and reconstructive surgery. Mm -hmm. It's the purely aesthetic side of things. Right. So a patient just comes to you, you know, with a deformity or a perceived deformity by them. Yeah. Like, you know... My boobs are too small. I want them to be bigger. Yeah. Um, they might be fine, you know, but they, yeah. in their mind, for whatever uh, environmental construct they've created, their boobs need, are not normal and their boobs need to be bigger. Yeah. So they, you know. And I think you've written before that they should be going potentially to a psych- 
psychologist, psychiatrist prior to a, yeah, a surgeon. Yeah, so I've been thinking about this again a lot, and I was thinking, you know, does every single person need to see <laughs> a psychiatrist? <laughs> because if you think about it, at the end of the day, all this aesthetic surgery, none of it is necessary. The purely aesthetic surgery, none of it. If you were truly happy with, um, you know, your everything else rather than your appearance, then you wouldn't need any surgery. But in, as I said, back to this um, environment that we have today, certainly we are judged by our looks, etc. Yeah. For people have to make up their own minds why they want the surgery, and then you. My job as a surgeon is to discuss with them and try and make sure that they're not doing it for the wrong reasons. Mm. So there's a few red flags, you know, make sure they haven't just recently broken up with a long-time partner mm. and now suddenly they want to change yeah. their appearance to find a new partner, unrealistic expectations, yeah. and then the body dysmorphic disorder, which they've, um, you know, they've got criteria for. But it's a perceived flaw which they perceive to be much worse than what other people would perceive and they obsess and focus on it to such a degree that it causes them problems in their functioning daily life. Almost like OCD, but yeah. OCD of a physical deformity that they can see. And it's interesting because, um, so for example, anorexic as an extreme version, they perceive flaw as a lot of fat. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and then another branch of that is the people who have muscle dysmorphia. So there's a lot who want to con still control their weight, mm -hmm. but they're concerned about fat. So they develop a muscle dysmorphia. So you see a lot of them go to the gym and put on muscle and um, completely obsess about how much muscle they have. So they may go see a plastic surgeon about extra liposuction when there's no fat there. Mm. I, I was just going to say, I'd never really thought, I mean, when I was thinking about your sort of selfie dysmorphia and, and the environment does do a lot to particularly young people to, to sort of shape mm -hmm. uh, expectations. But it is a two-way street, isn't it? It's the individual. I mean, we love stoicism and this idea that you can't change what people think. You should let go of those things you can't control. And yeah. this is at the heart of what we're discussing here as well, isn't it? You know, in terms of what people or how people view you in terms of beauty, if you could let go of that, then yeah. you're right. Very little of that cosmetic surgery, the, the aesthetic stuff would be required. But it's very hard, I mean, in terms yeah. of human nature. So, you know, if someone were to walk into my rooms with a hugely disproportionate nose or a jaw or something like that, you know, if they walk into an office, that's the first thing everyone's going to be staring at yeah. rather than focusing what they're saying. So, you know, I draw the line at things like that, you know, where you try and normalise the proportions for them. It's funny. It's got but to be a slippery slope. Though, it is a very slippery slope. Because... Clinically, medically, they can still breathe, they can still function. Exactly. Mm. So we so, are talking aesthetics. In terms of what I'm comfortable with, I draw the line at the neck. <laughs> so <laughs> I, you have to have a rule in every practice. So my rule is that I do cosmetic surgery above the neck. Mm -hmm. um, I don't do any cosmetic surgery below the neck. Mm. I think the face is important yeah. for day-to-day -day social interaction. So I, in my mind, I'm happy to proceed in that in that route. Yeah. You'd just amputate Ben, wouldn't you? <laughs> You wouldn't even bother. Maybe well, a we... face transplant. <laughs> can you can... do that? That'd be good. Are we talking? Happen in face off. Oh. <laughs> Are you old enough to remember that awful Nick Cage, John Travolta movie, Face Off, uh, where, where they swapped uh, faces? It's probably not because of my age, but probably because I just didn't. Probably because it was a super bad movie. Exactly. <laughs> very C grade. It's pretty cool. Very low brow too. <laughs> 
Should we leave the scrubs behind and pull on the combat boots, or maybe more accurately the fins, and talk about the work you're doing with the clearance divers? Yeah, sure. Yep. So um, I have my husband, my beautiful husband, to thank for all of the interaction with um, this beautiful community. Um, so. He pushes me a lot outside my comfort zone. <laughs> I'm actually not a very social person. Uh, I've had to develop that through my career. Um, but, you know, you know, he um, he has been involved with the Miljim. Mm-hmm. So um, I guess where it first started was we went to an education event um, where they were talking about fundraising by doing the Kokoda Tract. Yep. Um, so that was um, with Travis Hokar, Dan mm. Jackson and Denise Goldsworthy. They were all there um, discussing it. And that night, because we talked about doing the Kokoda track before mm. with some other friends, we're like, there's really no excuse. So we signed <laughs> up to do it. Um, and then in um, we, we following that meeting, we had several other catch-ups to talk about fundraising options. Um and one of the things that came about was to hold a charity event. So we were initially going to have a, a social gathering, the Claremont Hotel, and um, different people would have um, different prizes mm-hmm. that people could uh, buy tickets for. And then um, my husband had the idea of having the paintings. So um, he actually had, when we, um, I, I have actually haven't painted for ages, but he, he had seen one um, sketch that I'd done of a cheetah from many, many years ago. And then whilst we were there at that meeting, he said, well, Linda can can do the paintings. <laughs> and, um, you know, obviously, um, yeah, I, I went along with it because I think it's an amazing opportunity. I love art. And um, I thought, okay, it's a charity fundraiser. You know, we'll just put, see who buys yeah. it on the day, highest price money will go for a really good cause. So that's um, how it all started. And then the coronavirus hit and everything's been delayed for a year. And the painting is the one of the clearance diver with the mask around his neck. The goggles. Yeah. Yeah. So um, there's a... The clearance divers would string you up for calling them goggles. (laughs) goggles. Oh, sorry. It's a mask. It's a mask. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yeah, that's one of the pieces. So um, we we went and... um, had a few photos and um, that was the first piece that really struck out to me. I think it was just amazing, mm. you know, diver in the water with all the um, paint on his Camouflage, face yeah. and the mask. The mask was really cool. So um, I thought that'd be a great piece to start with. But I actually haven't, um, I've um, apologised that I'm going to, this won't be very exciting, but I haven't done any painting since high school. So, yeah, right. so you did because oh, this is I'm fascinated with this. So yeah. you did art as a child. So I um, just as in any other kid, yeah, yeah. I did art in school. Mm-hmm. Um, I liked art a lot, and again, going back to my competitive nature and competing with my brother, he used to sketch a lot. Yep. And I used to you know try and out sketch him all yep. the time, copy him. Um, and so we did a lot of art in Pakistan, you know, just art in general, and then. Um, I was actually my art teacher thought I was really good, so. Um, Which you are. We'll we'll link to your <laughs> amazing artwork. Thank in, you. In our show notes. So um, in year ten, um, I, you know, coming up to my year eleven, year twelve exams, you had to pick um, a course, you know, in in the other type subjects, and my parents didn't want me to do art. 
they asked me to, you know, they thought I'd focus way too much on that. So in the, in the end, I ended up doing geography, which I absolutely hated. <laughs> but my art teacher was really upset. So I think in reflection, I'm, I must have, you know, had something that the art teacher sure. um, had recognized. Um, yeah, so that was sort of the last time I really did anything significant apart from that one cheetah sketch. Mm. So I think before I got into the plastic training program, I tried to go back into art a little bit. So I went and got my own easel and a canvas and did a sketch and then I never completed it. Then I got into the training program and life just went by. Yeah. Um, so it's been very fortuitous, especially with COVID, mm. to be able to go back and re-pursue that mm. So you passion. have reconnected? Yeah, definitely. Let's fill in some gaps. So... You know, one sketch of a cheetah since high school, and now you're producing incredible oil paintings. Having having sort of bumbled on that journey myself, I mean, that yeah. doesn't just happen. There's there's you've got to get used to the medium and all that sort of stuff. Like, did so, you just teach yourself, or did you do classes? Or I watched a few YouTube videos. Yeah, but I basically taught myself. I mean, I think in my head I had an idea of how the colours are supposed to mix, um, and it was just a matter of. Um, you know, playing with the colours. Yep. I think all, a lot of people are scared of oil painting, but it's very forgiving. Yes, it is. So even with wet or dry. So with the wet, you can mix the different colours and, you know, you know, go on top of what you've already done and yep. fix it up. And we, if it's dry, it doesn't matter. You just go on Paint top of it. it. Yeah. So I think um, compared to acrylics, I think it's easier medium to use. Mm. It doesn't take as long to dry as people tell you. Mm. I mean, I, I found that... Within 48 hours, my paints have dried, even though I don't mix it with anything. I just use pure oil paint. Um, So, yeah, I'm really glad that I've gotten into it. And portraiture, is that a particular, you know, do you you enjoy that? Yeah, I enjoy it a lot. But again, it's not something that I've purely focused on. It's just that I like that um, picture, so I decided to paint it. So I I love portraiture. I love the human face. But I've got no idea really what's going on underneath. Has your anatomical, has your medical training helped in terms of your ability to see, paint, reconstruct a realistic? I think head? it's the other way around. I think I, I think I do have an eye for detail, mm-hmm. being able to look at something and then reproduce it on paper, and I think that's what's helped me in plastic surgery, rather than that helping me the other way around. Yeah, yeah. Um, but what I do is I don't do anything particularly interesting i just keep comparing so you know look at the photo do something compare what the differences are which is what our normal human eyes do anyway we're always just comparing different faces but i was just going to say i've i've found um with portraiture that i've had to unlearn like so rather than trying to draw what i think an eye or a nose looks like i've got to deconstruct it and just look at geometry and angles yeah. and distances and lines you know so, I'm so not this drawing is going to freak you out but yeah. I, I had a look at your portraits on instagram <laughs> yeah right they're actually amazing they're really good thank you I, yeah. but i was going to ask if you've done classes because it looks very geometrical and angles no i haven't but youtube the same yeah but that's how it worked in my head yeah because i i like i said when i was trying to draw a face yeah i, I was all over the shop but if i'm just trying to draw angles and i found it made more sense for me to break it down into that technical sort yeah. of thing, like the, the measurements. But there's very little few, I think there's very few people that can take that, but then also turn it into a unique face. 
Yeah. Uh, rather than reproducing the same just form. Just A face, so, it's D face. Yeah. yeah, it looks really good. Yeah, thank you. So why art and why not marathon running? I mean, Ben, you use art as a form of therapy, yeah. a release, an out from, you know, I guess. Yeah, I find daily. it really sort of cathartic and meditative. Mm. Yeah. It annoys me inherently <laughs> on an aeroplane. You put his headphones on and start sketching. <laughs> I've got to kind of elbow him in the ribs to get some attention periodically. But yeah. why art for you, Linda? Um, I think, especially as a kid, as um, um, as you mentioned, it was very uh, relaxing. For some reason, I don't find them as patient as I used to be, especially recently in drawing these pieces. Um, I don't find it gives me that as much relaxation as it did as I did when I was a kid. But maybe that's just in general yeah. um, because, of, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not as ignorant as I used to be and I'm thinking about within other things, but mm. I probably shouldn't be. So um, um, I, I just really enjoy it. I think it's a very rewarding mm. process, particularly seeing the pieces at the end. Mm. It can be very frustrating through the process because you kind of want it to finish, but then there's so many steps involved and then you have to add this detail and that that detail. And um, But it is exciting, the just the way of, um, you know, adding the layers and doing mm. all the steps and then seeing it build up to the final product. So I think about your professional role as being incredibly high pressure. You know, you're reconstructing someone's face. How do you release from that pressure or don't you feel the pressure? Um, I think with as with any job, when you've got the proper training for it, it sort of doesn't become pressurised. Um, I mean, certainly there's, I can't say there's no pressure. So there's a pressure to um, to do well in each operation, mm. um, in each appointment, seeing the patients, that pressure in the interaction. So um, I would say that probably because I have to be so professional at work, I'm a very big kid. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, I think I'm just a big kid in general anyway, but um, even more so out of work. Is and that, that help that help keeps the balance. That's my excuse. <laughs> no, but you do it in work. <laughs> I want to see that you're not building up any professional pressure. You're just constantly releasing it. <laughs> mm. Linda, we like to finish our segments with a little thing we call quick questions, quick answers. So are you up for some rapid fire yep. <laughs> questions? My first question for you. What is the best medical TV show or movie? Botched. <laughs> nice. What's it called? Botched. Oh. What's your message for teens that perhaps have selfie dysmorphia? Stop thinking about what you look like and use your brain and think about how you can improve um, other people's lives and how you can really have a um, successful life um, by helping others. What's your most satisfying surgical result? Uh, I think craniofacial reconstruction. So mm -hmm. babies who are born with an um, abnormal head shape, yeah. fixing those. Mm -hmm. Iran has some beautiful mountains and some fantastic skiing, little known fact. So mountains or beach and why? Oh, that's such a tough one. Supposed to be rapid. <laughs> Perth um, has no mountains, but has lots of beach. I can't decide. I think both. Split, okay. Yeah. 
You might They're have to just live beautiful. in. You might have to live in Lebanon where you can do both <laughs> in one day, can't you? Go skiing. And, yeah, depends about that. your definition of a mountain. <laughs> mm. Mm. We once spoke to a chronic overachiever, a guy called Tim Robertson, who was a fighter pilot and SAS guy and amazing musician, etc., etc., etc. And he describes a moment in his fighter pilot training where he was sobbing in the toilet cubicle, which led me to wonder, have you ever had a similar moment in your surgical training? What was the hardest time you went through in your, your surgical training? There have definitely been a lot of hard times. Um, I think the hardest time for me was probably uh, failing a term during my my training because of problems with communication. So I go back to sort of being um, antisocial. <laughs> so I probably shouldn't do, do reveal too many details. But anyhow, anyhow, I try and steer away from people I don't like. And maybe um, that has resulted in problems with communication. Yep. I like it. Favourite? Favourite type of music? Old school R&B. <laughs> um, do you practice meditation or mindfulness? I try to. Mm. So I think I'm increasingly trying to be more active in that regard, but I haven't been able to be successful yet. Yeah. Follow up from me, the Unforgiving 60 podcast has the Unforgiving 60 playlist so we can include your power song. What is your power song? Eye of the Tiger. <laughs> ah, hey, I don't think we've got Eye of the Tiger. I don't think we do, and I can't top that. Is that really a power song? Yeah. yeah okay. All right. It's, good. Good it's a good song. power song. <laughs> it's probably the ultimate power song. <laughs> Linda, it's been fascinating, fantastic, really enjoyable to speak with you. Thank you very much for coming on and for, for sharing all your thoughts with us. Oh, my absolute pleasure. It's been really fun. Thank you. Thank you. We love music and the arts and truly believe that these form a key component of resilience and make the world a much more beautiful place. Music played on this podcast can reach over a thousand ears a day and the incredible artists who gave us permission to use their music on season one have been downloaded tens of thousands of times on Spotify. If you are a musician or band who wants to expose your songs to a global audience in over 100 countries, please get in touch with us at debrief at unforgiving60.com.